had the rare privilege this week of being able to utilize again something I actually learned in school when preparing this sermon. It doesn't happen often, but every once in a while you, you have those moments. So much of what we learn in school feels, uh, feels very impractical, right? Like something you're never going to use in real life. I remember giving our math teachers especially a hard time about that when you're doing like complex algebra or something like that. Like, what's the point of this? You know, they would say, well, you're not always going to have a calculator with you when you get old, you know? Anyone have a cell phone with a calculator on it? Most of us do. I remember one of the, one of the things they would always make a big deal of, right, when they would try to, try to make the point that, oh, no, you'll use this stuff all the time in real life. Just, just imagine this situation, right, situation you'll, you'll probably run into at some point in life. Suppose there's a train leaving Dallas at 3 o'clock, traveling 65, you all remember it, right, you all know, traveling 65 miles an hour. Another train headed that same direction from Chicago that left at 7 o'clock, and it's traveling 70 miles an hour. What time are they going to collide? I just always remember that question, thinking, first of all, I don't think I'm ever going to find myself in that situation, needing to know that. And if I were, I don't think the right course of action would be to everyone gather up and calculate what time they are going to collide, right? I think the situation would call for more of a, hey, how do we get on the phone and stop them from actually colliding, right? How do we just tell one of them to stop? Um, but one of the things that came up this week was something that I, I never thought I would use again in my life. Um, and it was from a philosophy class, Intro to Philosophy, where we talked about the ancient Greek philosopher Plato. Because the writer of Hebrews in this text uses really thick language um, that has its roots in this philosopher, and that's what he kind of draws on. So if you aren't familiar with Plato, the thing he's most famous for is this idea of forms um, and shadows. And so he basically said this, that in life there are the things we see, but behind the things we see, the things we can't see, there are these greater more pure, true realities, um, and that we just see kind of a shadow of them in our life experience. And so he had this illustration where imagine um, we're all sitting here in a line, and there's a wall behind us, and we're in a cave. So there's this wall, we're all sitting here, we're chained to it, so we can't see what's behind us. We can only see what's in front of us. And on the wall in front of us, which is what we all see and experience on a daily basis, what we think is real is actually just shadows of these these kind of archetypal realities that exist behind us in a different room, which are the, he called them the forms, like the, the true forms, the realities, and that what we see and hear on a daily basis is really just a shadow of those things. And I think Plato was actually closer to a biblical worldview than he probably realized, right, in the sense that um, he probably believed that, man, what we see and what we hear, there's there's greater realities. There's a bigger thing happening. And even though Plato himself never came to realize from what we know what those realities actually were, he knew there was something bigger. Or maybe he just liked shadow puppets. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too deep into this. Um, but the idea is that writer of Hebrews draws upon that language. And while he would probably is, would not describe himself as a, um, a follower of Plato, he did fall on that language um, in describing biblical realities. And so much of what we experience in terms of wisdom, love, goodness, and justice are really just dim shadows of the God who is truly wise, truly loving, truly good, and truly just. 
You think about the idea that man is made in the image of God, that, that an individual human being is in some sense kind of a, a dim shadow and reflection of this greater form and reality that is God himself. And so this idea is actually somewhat biblical. And so the writer of Hebrews draws on this, and as he does, I want to make one clarification. We're going to use these terms a lot this morning of Jesus or other, other, other components of the new covenant being a true version of something and things in the old covenant um, maybe being a not true version. So you've got the, the true version, then you've got the version that preceded that. And real quick, just to define what we mean by that, Richard Phillips says it this way. Um, he says, it's not true versus false, but true versus temporary and illustrative. So when we talk about Jesus being the true high priest, doing the true sacrifice, it's not to say that the high priest and the sacrifice in the Old Covenant is false or fake, but simply that it is temporary and illustrative of a greater reality that was to come. So let's pick it up, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. So as we get into this chapter, we basically see two things that are seen as the truer realities. Um, one of them um, is the Old Testament, the t- idea of the temple, and the other one, the idea of the high priest. And we're going to look at how both of those things are shadows of the greater reality which was found in Jesus. And so first of all, let's look at the temple. The temple was not the true dwelling place of God, but just a shadow. The temple was a shadow. It says in verse 2 that Jesus entered the true tent, which is in heaven. Verses 1 through 5 are all about the location in which Jesus serves as a high priest. And one of the indications of Jesus being a truer and better high priest is the location in which he serves. Look at verse 5. It says this, talking about the Old Testament priests, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so in other words, the, the tabernacle itself, where the Jews worshipped in Moses' time, you think about the, the holy place and the different fixtures, the pieces of furniture, the altar, the table of bread, the lampstand, all these things. And then the curtain and the holy of holies, right? This more holy place. All these things were shown to Moses in a vision. And it was not just a vision of here's what I want you to build, but it was a reflection of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. Now, I don't think that necessarily means there's a lampstand in heaven and there's an altar in heaven. It might, but what it does mean is that there is some continuity that somehow what Moses constructed in the tabernacle was a reflection or a shadow of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. So you've got the idea that earthly priests were not truly in God's dwelling place. Again, it doesn't mean that it was, it was fake. It just means that it was temporary and illustrative when we think about the tabernacle. But that Jesus, in a sense, was in God's presence in a different way than the priests ever were able to be, since Jesus has ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest. And so one of the phrases you see in this text is the idea that talking about the Old Testament priest and the temple is that they serve. And one of the, it's kind of an indication, by the way, of 
why most scholars think that the book of Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. Because in the year A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem, where the priests would do all these things, it was destroyed. And so you see in chapter 8, verse 13, it says this, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, the old covenant, obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so that's kind of an indication that maybe the temple is still there and those sacrifices are still happening. And the author of Hebrews is telling him, move on from that. That thing is now obsolete and ready to vanish away. And soon after this was written, that temple would actually be destroyed. In other words, you might think of the, the old covenant and the, the temple and the priest as a temporary wall. Um, when we moved into our house, we were rearranging a lot of things, and we, we went like full-on Chip and Joanna Gaines, and we took down a wall, okay? Um, so when we did that, they had to put a big lamb beam across to support and span um, that space where that wall used to be. And I remember when the framers came and did that, one of the first things they did before they tore out the old wall is they built a little temporary wall. And when I say temporary, I mean like this thing was crude looking. It was just basically a stud every about four feet or so with one base plate and one top plate, and that was it. But that thing held up all those joists that were going to be just kind of left hanging there once that wall went away while they installed that beam. And that's kind of a, an idea of what's happening here, that the temple and, and the priesthood and all those things we see in the Old Covenant, they were just a temporary support structure kind of holding things together until Christ came and completed the work, right, finished the, the renovation, if you will, and that once that was done, it was time for that temporary wall to be taken out. Now, we don't, we don't, we're not the best at, like, taking care of our house in the Martin household. There's still some little things here and there that we've been meaning to get to for the last seven years. Um, but, but in, you know, for something like that, that wall that they put up, we did take that out. You're not going to see, like, bare two-by-fours in the middle of our kitchen anymore because we understood that that the purpose is done, that thing needs to be set aside now. And that's the illustration he's giving is that this old covenant, now that the true form, the reality has come, these things, they're ready to be set aside and cast away because they are no longer needed. Jesus has finished the real and ultimate work. And he's telling these, these worshipers in the book of Hebrews, these Jews, not to go back and lean on or uphold that temporary wall anymore because Jesus has come, and there is no longer a need for it. Because Jesus did not just serve in that little temple that was a reflection of the reality of God's presence. He went into the very presence of God on our behalf. So the temple was just a shadow. Likewise, the priesthood in the Old Testament was also a shadow. If you look at chapters 7 through 9 in the book of Hebrews, all three chapters are basically a detailed description of how and why Jesus is a better priest than the priest in the Old Covenant. Verse 4 even goes so far to say it this way in Hebrews 8. It says this, Now if he were on earth, speaking of Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So the author actually says that, look, if Jesus were serving in the way that the other priests do here on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Not, Again, I don't think he's, he's taking shots at the Old Testament covenant saying that was fake. He's simply saying that what Jesus has done is so much better that in comparison to what he is, who he is as our high priest, these other priests that serve on earth are not, earth are not even priests at all. So let's look at in what ways Jesus was better. What makes him a better 
high priest and the priests of the old covenant. The first thing is location. We just covered that in our first point about the temple being a shadow. The second thing is his divinity. Unlike the priests in the old covenant, Jesus is God. He is divine. There's a quote by um, Richard Phillips where he's talking about this distinction and he says it this way. He says, earthly priests can share our suffering but cannot transcend it. They can share our suffering but cannot transcend it. While they are able to sympathize with our weakness, they are likewise under sin's ruthless grip. Jesus alone has shared in our humanity while adding the power of his own divine nature. So that is why his work is superior. In a word, it is perfect. This is why our Lord left heaven in the first place, to make himself perfect for his return to heaven as our great high priest. So what makes Jesus different? His location, his divinity, and then lastly, his completed work. Just to give one more house illustration here, I want you guys to think for a minute about the furniture in your house. Just think of like four or five pieces of furniture. Maybe your favorite pieces, least favorite, doesn't matter. Just four or five big pieces of furniture you'd see in your house. I'm going to guess most of you probably thought of at least one workspace, right? Or maybe a table or maybe a kitchen counter or something like that. Something that um, is used to set things on and work. But probably a few of the things you thought about were something to sit on or something to lay on. Something to rest in, like a couch, a chair, a bed, something like that. You think about the tabernacle and the temple. One really interesting thing is that of all the pieces of furniture that God told them to put in that place... There was no place to sit. There's no bed, no sofa, no double decker couch, you know, no chair. Certainly not a bed, not even a bench, right? There's nowhere to sit. Why? Because they were never done. <laughs> the work of the priest was never done. Once they completed one sacrifice, it was time to get ready for another one. They never hit a point in the temple where their sacrificial work and intercession was complete. And contrast that to Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Because he did it. He completed it. He finished the work and sat down. So in this, because the temple was a shadow and Jesus went into the better temple, and because the priesthood was a shadow and Jesus was the true and better priest, we have a better covenant. Because of what Jesus has done, there is a new covenant that we live within the confines of that is different from how people related to God under the old covenant before Jesus. If you look at verses 8 through 12, it's a really long quotation from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, where God promises that to the people living under the old covenant, he is going to provide a new way for them to relate to God and know God, different than what they're in at the time. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So God says a new covenant is coming. So what does that mean? Well, if you keep reading, we're going to see some answers to that. The first thing is this, is that our faith in this new covenant is internalized. 
If you look at verse 10, he says it this way. This, again, this is the quotation from Jeremiah. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them onto their hearts. So there's this shift of God's law, God's words, God's revelation being external, something they can look upon outside of themselves to God now saying that law, those things are going to be written in your minds and on your hearts. So what is meant by this shift? What does this mean? I mean, we still have God's word external to us, right? We don't, doesn't mean we just fully rely on our own personal intuition now. We still look outside of ourselves for truth into the pages of scripture. We still rely on that primarily. So what's different? Well, I think the first obvious answer to that is the Holy Spirit. Think for a minute about how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Covenant. Right? You didn't have the idea that every follower of God, every Israelite, was indwelt with the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Often the Holy Spirit was seen or thought of as someone who operated outside of them. Think about when they left Egypt and he would appear as a cloud by day and fire by night. Right, You had him in and among God's people, but not residing within them. And when the Holy Spirit is described to be upon someone or in someone, it's very few and specific people. His movement is very sporadic, and it's very individualized, not at large the entire group of God's followers. Even think about the story of Elijah and Elisha, that when Elijah ascends to heaven, he tells Elisha that God's Spirit is going to move from Elijah to Elisha, almost as if you don't have the idea that God's spirit can be in both places at once. Even though we know he can be, that wasn't how he was operating at the time. And those who did have God's spirit on them or within them in that special way, they weren't just random people. They were people that were called to very specific tasks, the prophets, the priests, the kings. And in the new covenant, Peter uses the language of we are a royal priesthood. That each one of us, as individual believers, carries the same weight of importance to God as did the priest in the Old Covenant. That we all are now special in the sense that we have been given the Holy Spirit to reside within us under this new covenant. Secondly, our promises are secured. This covenant, this new covenant, is not based upon performance, but upon God's promise and faithfulness. In Jeremiah chapter 30, before he quotes this section that we see in Hebrews, before that in the book of Jeremiah, he speaks of Israel in this way and their failure to uphold their end of the bargain under the old covenant. He says this, For thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Let me, I don't want to go beyond what Scripture is saying here. And so we do have the idea in the Old Covenant that it was still rooted and based in God's grace, right? The priesthood, the temple, all those things were not just man's conjuring up ideas to make themselves right with God. Those were gifts of grace, means of grace that God provided for them to relate to God and be drawn near to him, right? They weren't nothing, and they were gifts from God. 
but their relationship with God was very much characters by uh, if you do this, I will do that type of agreement. If you will uphold this and walk in this way, then I will do this. But what we see in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, is not that at all, but that Jesus has done everything to forgive our sins, to cast them as far as the east is from the west, so that we must only believe and trust in the work that he has done on our behalf. In Romans chapter 1, our and kids club on Wednesday nights, our kids are memorizing these verses right now. So we've been reading them a little bit at home. Um, and uh, verses 16 and 17, and verse 17 is actually um, the second part of this passage we're going to read. It's actually the verse that really triggered Martin Luther um, towards his attempted reforms of the church at the time that eventually led to the Protestant Reformation. And this verse that really um, spun him off on the idea of seeing Scripture revealing that God's salvation um, is achieved not by our works or by anything the church does for us, but by grace through faith. So Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is that verse, verse 17. For in it, in speaking of the gospel, in the gospel, what Jesus has accomplished, in the news of that, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So, kind of an odd wording there, from faith for faith. Different translations do it different ways. But if you look in any study Bible, regardless of the translation, one of the things you're going to see is the probably proper reading that would be beginning and ending in faith. That under this new covenant, because of the gospel, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. How man can be righteous before God is revealed. And the formula is this, faith. Beginning and ending in faith. Not works, not accomplishments we achieve on our own. Not us holding up our end of the bargain, but us putting our faith in Jesus who did what we could not do when we were not upholding our end of the bargain. So how do we apply this today? This section we're in in Hebrews right now is a little bit difficult when it comes to application because there's not a lot of now go and do this. We're going to get to that as we move later on into the um, chapter 10, 11, 12. We're going to see more now go and do this type stuff. But right now, the section we're in is just more, hey, this is the reality. This is the truth. And so much of the application is just us believing this. And so for today, I'm just going to point us to one thing. Trust in your high priest. Trust in Jesus as your high priest. I find it very helpful personally in terms of just appreciating and understanding and remembering rightly what the Lord has done to think back on what things would have been like had Jesus not come. Right, like if you think, what, what must it have been like or what would it be like for us if we were living pre the coming of Jesus and the cross? What would change? What would things be like for us without him and his work? I think it would be extremely difficult to trust that we were truly forgiven and right standing with God under this old covenant. I mean, think about the elements we've talked about today. The temple, right? Well, let's look at the tabernacle. When Israel left Egypt, they saw God was with them, right? A cloud by day and fire by night. God was moving in among his people. This temple, you would look at it and I would think they would probably be thinking, is, is God really there today? I don't see him. I mean, I know that's, 
this thing we built and we had to tear it down yesterday. We had we moved, so we had to put it up again today. And now I guess I guess God is in there. And then on the Day of Atonement, the one day a year, the high priest would go into that place, into into the very inner court, into the Holy of Holies. Probably not look much sign or indication that God is actually in there, and just have to trust that He's there. And I mean, you know, God's everywhere at all times, right? But is He is He really there? Is He really attentive? Is He listening? Is He receiving? the sacrifice that's being made. And think about the, the Old Testament priest. Had to put your faith in that guy. I mean, look, I, I know and respect a lot of you in this room and in this church. There's some amazing godly people who are just a, a model of what it means to live an upright and righteous life. But I don't know a single person in this congregation that I would fully and confidently send into that place on my behalf to atone for my sins, right? Like, I don't trust any of you that much. I mean, why? Well, because that person has sinned too. Even the best among us still has his own sin to deal with. And so you can imagine the Old Testament. Let's, let's just call the priest Billy. I'm sure there were a lot of priests named Billy back then, especially high priests. Um, you've got Billy over here. and You've seen Billy's kids. You've seen how Billy acts around his kids sometimes. And that guy is going in to make atonement for your sins. You're putting your hope in him to atone for your sins on behalf of God. And you're thinking, he's got his own sin. What, who, what position is he in to be approaching the Holy of Holies and God, who hopefully is there on my behalf to make atonement for my sins? Think about the sacrifice. A lot of the sacrifices involved a, a pure and spotless lamb, right? How do you know it was pure and spotless? Maybe that lamp, maybe that lamb had a limp, and the priest or whoever was wanting to thin out the herd a little bit that day, feeling a little stingy, not wanting to give his best. Maybe, maybe the lamb had a sickness that no one knew about. Was it pure and spotless? I hope so. That's kind of a big deal. Apparently that's the sacrifice God wants. And with all those things, the temple, the, the, the shortcomings of the priest, the potential shortcomings of the sacrifice, you can imagine that it would have been like one day a year to come and make atonement from our sins. Like, man, I hope this works. Hope we get it right. Thank God that is not the position we're in today, friends. But as this book says, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we consider this text today and think on it um, throughout today and the rest of the week, that you would, you would help us to have a, a greater understanding of how special and great Jesus is as our high priest and how much better he is, how much need there was from the old covenant. As we look at how it fell short and the uncertainty of it, God, when we find an anchor and confidence and security in your promises through the work you've accomplished through your son, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.